Hello, beloved On Being listeners and friends. Many of you are asking how you can help support the work we're doing at the On Being Project. If we're fortunate enough to make it onto your list for giving this year, you can absolutely visit onbeing.org give. Your generosity of every kind is gratefully received. Thank you for being with us on this adventure. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with essayist, novelist, and travel writer Pico Iyer. There is a shorter produced version of this at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Hello. Hi. Yeah, can you hear what me? Yes, I can, and what a great pleasure to talk to you. You too. I've been looking forward to this for such a long time. I um. Would, I, I wonder if you would say your name for me the way you say it. I want to be absolutely correct of course. when the time um, comes. <laughs> no, if everybody asks that, and I wish it were a romantic pronunciation, but <laughs> it's um, Pico and Aya as in fire. Oh, Aya. Yeah, see, I have tended to say yeah, which is obviously A lot wrong. of people say that. I wish it were that, but sadly <laughs> it's just upfront and brutal. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think we've done we've done the sound check, so we can just plunge in. And um, do you have any questions of me before we begin? No, I think we're, um, you usually talk for about ninety minutes. Is that right? Yes. And then yeah. Do the edited section. And 90 and minutes. We have a real good. conversation, uh, and we can, you know, let it develop and take shape. And uh, uh, and that's a real luxury of this kind of radio. And it sounds like you've done ISDN before, so. You've done this kind of interview before? A little bit, yes. Okay. I've certainly, I was going to say, you and your guests have been my constant companions in rural Japan. What I do in the long autumn evenings is listen to your show. So, oh, I love that. Um, yes, yeah, so <laughs> I, I can't think of better companions. So. Oh. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Um, yeah, well, there's, a, there's an amazing intimacy, actually, to this technology. Um, you know, there's something about it's. I mean, I sometimes am in person with people, but um, I more often not. And there, there's something, there's a wonderful discipline about just having to work with the human voice and really being able to completely listen because none of that other sensory, you know, information is coming in that comes in when we're sitting across from someone. I so agree. I never watch TV and I don't do most media, but I right. always listen to the radio for that reason because it just draws you into a very close conversation. Yeah. All right. Well, let's just let's just get started. Um I um I mean, you have you have such an interesting background even even for this age where 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 um you know, nothing is predictable anymore. Your your parents <laughs> were from India, you were born and grew up in England and the U.S. Um, sounds like both of your parents were. Uh, your father was a philosopher, and your mother was also thinking about philosophy and religion. I was really, um, I was really intrigued to learn that your first name, which you don't use um, in your writing, is Siddharth, which is based in part on the Buddha's first name. 
Exactly. And of course, I didn't realize until well into my 40s that I have the sort of perfect global name and the name that has fit my destiny. Because as you say, <laughs> my first right. name is, is the name of the Buddha. And my second name, Pico, uh, my parents as philosophers named me after the great Renaissance Catholic heretic Pico della Mirandola from oh. Italy. And my third name is my father's name, Raghavan, which is a good Hindu name. And my fourth name sort of shows that I come from a lineage of South Indian priests and um, so I actually and my father was a theosophist so in my four names I have four religious traditions. <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, so I mean how would you describe uh, if you would describe what is it, the, the spiritual sensibility that you absorbed in your early life with your parents? I would say it was very diverse and of course like any child I didn't appreciate it at the time not until much later but both my parents were teaching philosophy at Oxford University when I was a little boy and so I would come back from kindergarten and there would be Tibetan monks in the room sent by the Dalai Lama to learn Western philosophy uh, from my (laughs) Indian father to complement the Tibetan philosophy they had learned and of course uh, there were all the great myths and enchantments of the Ramayana and the Mahabharata and the Indian stories that my parents passed on to me at bedtime. And the other aspect was that both my parents had grown up in British India, in Bombay. And so they were steeped in Shakespeare, English poetry, and the Bible. And in fact, to this day, my 83-year-old mother lives in the hills of California. She always dresses in a sari. And when occasionally a missionary will pay a visit to her house and say, excuse me, ma'am, have you ever uh, read the Bible? My sari-clad mother can recite the Bible backwards and (laughs) forwards. She knows it better than anyone I've ever met. So I was, later I realized how, what a blessing to grow up in the midst of all these traditions. Yes. And and then you also got a lot of Anglican ritual going to public school in the UK as well, it sounds like. Very much. Church every morning, church every evening, <laughs> hymns in Latin on Sundays. Uh, I could stun my friends in California by reciting the Lord's Prayer in Latin when we were watching a horror movie at the drive-in. <laughs> so, And again, it's a great resource that later I appreciated, that we were trained in Latin and Greek and ancient history, but also um, in, in the Bible. And, you know, I think you know what I'm describing when I say that you know, you, you are an intellectual. You you were always an intellectual. And there's one place in your writing where you disco- you you refer to your father, you refer to all the in all the institutions of higher skepticism to which your father had sent you. Um, so that's also very defining. Um, and I just you know I wonder you know as I say you were always an intellectual, even with all of that in your background. I I wonder if you were always interested in what you now refer to as the inner world. And you know what I mean by that is did you did you take it seriously as an intellectual? I've got to confess to you, I think of intellectual, my prejudice is almost to think of it as a bad word or a yeah. dirty word. And I think that everything important in my life has not come through my mind but through my spirit or my being Mm. or my heart. Everything I trust, whether it's the people I love or the values I cherish or the places that have moved me, uh, have come at some much deeper level than the mind. And I sometimes think the mind makes lots of complications over what is a much more beautiful and transparent encounter with the world. So I suppose I've tried to run away from everything I associate with the intellect. And I'm very grateful uh, for the great institutions which 
trained me a lot and in fact in some ways enabled me to do without them and to get rid of them. I think you mm. have to explore that world before you can turn your back on it or turn the close the door on it. But really I, I hope the heart of my last thirty years as an adult has been about moving towards those things I can't explain and that reason can't begin to do justice to. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like as an essayist and as a writer and as a travel writer, as a novelist as well, you you kind of are a cartographer, kind of an an, an observer um, as well as a participant in this, you know, this... This I would say the rediscovery of the inner world, uh, both in yourself but also in the world at large. And I and I you know I think that's something I've been tracing these past years, and it's it runs all the way through your writing, kind of finding people everywhere, in unexpected places, um, exploring this part of life um, with a new kind of vigor and and a new integrity. I think. Well, thank you so much. I mean, that is a great compliment, and I, I will accept that even if I don't <laughs> accept intellectual. And you're you're right. I mean, I think it's quite conscious uh, in me that as a little boy, as you said, I grew up quite um, traveling a lot because first being born to Indian parents in England, and then we moved to California when I was seven. And in those days, it was actually cheaper to continue getting my education in England and flying back to my parents mm. in the holidays than to go to the local private school. So from the time I was nine, I was living on planes and flying across the North Pole to school by myself. And so that and you were meant eaten, that, right? Was, were you eaten those years? Yes, years? and right. I'm forever mm-hmm. grateful for the education I got there from my teachers and my classmates. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it meant that travel was second nature. And then when I was loose upon the world in the 20s, I quickly literally tried to map the world and to um, see as many places as possible and try to take in. I, I always remembered that I felt I was almost a part of the first generation ever to be able to wake up one morning and to be in Tibet or Bolivia or Yemen the next day. My grandparents couldn't have imagined that. And I thought, um, this is an opportunity I don't want to squander. So I traveled a lot. It's one of the things that's worth pausing every once in a while and taking in, isn't it? I mean, no one ever says that, but it's so true, this huge, this dramatic change in our lifetime. Yes, which Mm -hmm. we quickly take for granted. And also the dramatic change that goes with it, that my grandparents almost had their home and their community and their tribe and their religion handed to them at birth, whereas I felt that I could in some ways create my own, which is a challenge, but it was a beautiful opportunity. And so I began traveling a lot and gathering a lot of um, external experience and, and indeed trying to map first Central and South America and then Asia and then the Middle East. And at some point I thought, well, I've been really lucky to see many, many places. Now the great adventure is the inner world, that I've Mm -hmm. spent a lot of time gathering emotions, impressions and experiences. Now I just want to sit still for years on end, really, charting that inner landscape. Because I think anybody who travels knows that you're not really doing so in order to move around. You're traveling in order to be moved. And really Mm. what you're seeing is not just the Grand Canyon or the Great Wall, but some moods or intimations or places inside yourself that you never ordinarily see when you're sleepwalking through your daily life. And so I thought there's this great undiscovered terrain that Henry David Thoreau and Thomas Merton and Emily Dickinson fearlessly investigated, and I want to follow in their footsteps. Mm. Yes, and um, and I feel like those those kinds of figures who have investigated this fearlessly across the ages are 
you know, have your have been your companions. Um, and it also seems, you know, the language you just used about that we are the first generation to kind of create our own place in the world and and be where we want to be. I mean, it, it, we're we're also, um, and I and I think you're part of this, um, and I guess I'm part of this too. We're we're also. This is the first generation where human beings don't inherit their religious identity, their spiritual identity, where modern people are actually um, crafting these things um, on their own. And I I think about that, too, as something so new. Yes, uh, which we're really on uncharted ground in that mm-hmm. regard. So that was just what I was thinking as I was saying that, that on the one hand, I was lucky to be the beneficiary of maybe four religious traditions when I was growing up. <laughs> on the other hand, I didn't have one. And uh, to some extent, perhaps my whole life is going to be about making some kind of rigorous, useful collage of mm-hmm. the many traditions I've been lucky enough to be exposed to um, and seeing how each can shed light on the other. But I don't have the radiant clarity and certainty of many people whom I admire who were born into a tradition and know from the first day that that is where they belong. Right. I find it very interesting um, that you, you, know, you have really devoted yourself to this subject of of the inner world, inner life, spiritual life. Um, but you've re- repeatedly written that you um, have never been tempted to, to take up a, 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 a spiritual, formal spiritual practices yourself, that you don't meditate, you don't attend services. Um, is that still true? Have you never met, even writing a book about the Dalai Lama, that you haven't tried meditation? It's embarrassing, but it's true. No, it, I, I, <laughs> I watch my my wife wakes up every morning at five a.m. and meditates, uh-huh. and I lie in bed, watch her meditating, and then collapse in a heap. I do it vicariously through her. And, <laughs> but um, you know, you mentioned the Dalai Lama, and I think that's part. Spent. I've been lucky enough to know the Dalai Lama since I was a teenager, and I travel with him across Japan every year. And I think spending a lot of time with a man of that degree of spiritual seriousness and devotion has taught me what a serious, solemn undertaking it is. And I don't want to be presumptuous and to claim to mm-hmm. a religious tradition until I've earned it. And I think seeing somebody like the Dalai Lama or even the sometimes Zen monk Leonard Cohen, I see what hard work it is and how many years go into their feeling worthy of calling themselves uh, a Buddhist in, in those instances. And my Catholic monk friends teach me the same lesson. Yeah. And as you know, that the Dalai Lama, in response to the global times that you and I have been discussing, when he comes to this country, will always tell people, please don't become a Buddhist. Right. Stay within your own traditions where your roots are deepest. You can learn some things from Buddhists. Buddhists can learn something from you. But don't too hastily abandon the centuries of tradition that sit under you and grab something you don't perhaps imperfectly understand. So I've maybe erred on the side of wariness, uh, of apprenticing myself in some ways to so many wise people, but not feeling that I've earned the right to call myself anything. But, you know, I think that that what you're describing is actually also what is new. I mean, you could say that starting in the late 20th century, you know, with the New Age... Um, with kind of the import of Buddhism to the West, um, there was a lot of curiosity about different religious traditions, and and also, you know, people, you know, you, you might call a lot of spiritual promiscuity, kind of <laughs> um, exactly right. I mean, just dabbling, and and um, and but I 
I feel, and I, I think this is what you're describing, that, that, that there's been an evolution, kind of a maturation um, of, as you say, what, are, what was the word you used? A collage that, you know, in fact, your life, your life, in, in fact, has uh, several lineages uh, of religious traditions in it. But it's, it's at one and the same time kind of honoring that and honoring the vastness of the questions um, but not, but, but being careful. I mean, be, there's there's depth and integrity to the to this search as well. Um, do you know what I mean? And I, I I think that is a new development if you look at this culturally. Yes, I no, I think that's really uh, beautifully said. I think one of the joys of the present moment is that not only are we exposed to many traditions, but we are obliged to understand them because if we live in a major mm. American city, we are surrounded by Sikhs and Muslims and, and Buddhists. And if we don't come to understand them, we are going to be the losers. But at the same time, as you said, I'm very wary of the great what the great uh, religious scholar Houston Smith calls salad bar spirituality, yeah, right, where you right. know you get a little Hinduism, mix in some Islam, right. sprinkle some Buddhism Do on it. Do some Native American rituals and... Exactly, yeah. and I, I, that's never appealed to me. And I, I always remember the Tibetans always say it's better to dig one well sixty feet deep than ten wells six feet deep. Mm. And so, um, as I liked what you said about spiritual promiscuity, and I think that's something we have to be aware of, even as we are gratefully taking in many of these traditions. Right. And just while I while I think of it, when you asked me, as so many of my friends do, why I don't meditate, uh, if my wife were here, she would fall around laughing and say, Krista, all this guy ever does is meditate, just because I'm a writer. <laughs> and so she right. sees me, I wake up, I have breakfast, I make a five-foot commute to my desk, and then I just sit there for at least five hours trying to sift through my distortions and illusions and projections and find what is real behind the many things I'm tempted to say, and I think a writer is in a blessed position because in some ways our job is to sit still and to meditate for a living. So although I don't have a formal spiritual meditation practice, I do spend much of my life uh, in the middle of nowhere stationary, and I'm really grateful for that. Yes, and, I, and, and you've, you've given a name to, to this life you lead, to, to what I agree I would call a contemplative practice, which is stillness. Um, and I think it's such a wonderful way that you've injected that word in, in, in your writing and kind of into our cultural discourse. I mean, I, I wonder, when did, do you know when you, can you trace when you started to, um, to name this, to, to use that word, to name this impulse in you in that way? I think I can very distinctly. Um, as I said, I've always traveled a lot. And even in my 30s, I noticed I'd already accumulated one million miles on a single United States airline. So I realized I have a lot of movement in my life, but not maybe enough stillness. And around that same time, uh, our family house in Santa Barbara burned to the ground and I lost everything I had in the world. I bought a toothbrush from an all-night supermarket that evening, mm. and that was the only thing I had the next day. And so I was unusually footloose. And a friend who was a schoolteacher recommended that I go um, and spend a few days in a Catholic hermitage. And although I'm not Catholic, and although I'm not a hermit, uh, he told me that he always took his classes there, and even the most distracted, restless, testosterone adult adolescent boy felt calmer and clearer when he went there. So I thought anything that works for an adolescent boy ought to work for me. 
and I got in my car and I drove north along the coast following the sea and the road got narrower and narrower and then I came to an even narrower, barely paved road that snaked up for two miles uh, to the top of a mountain and I got out of my car at this monastery and the air was pulsing. Um, it was very silent, but really the silence wasn't the absence of noise. It was almost a presence of these transparent walls that I think the monks had worked very, very hard to make available to us yeah. in the world. And I stepped into the little room where I was going to stay, and it was simple, but there was a bed and a long desk, and above the desk a long picture window, and outside it a walled garden with a chair, and beyond that just this great blue expanse of the Pacific Ocean. And somehow, almost immediately, it was as if a huge heaviness fell away from me and the lens cap came off my eyes. And mm. suddenly I was seeing everything from, with great immediacy and it was almost as if you know, little Pico had disappeared and the whole world had come in to me instead. Mm. And I remember a, a blue jay suddenly alighted on the fence outside my window and I watched it wrapped as if it was the most miraculous thing that had happened. And then bells began ringing above and it felt like they were ringing uh, inside me. And then when darkness fell, I just walked along the monastery road under the stars, watching the taillights of cars disappear around the headlands to the south. And really, almost instantaneously, I felt I've stepped into a richer, deeper life, a, a real life, mm. um, that I'd half forgotten had existed. And I, one thing I noticed was <clears throat> when I was driving up, like many of us, I was conducting all kinds of conversations or arguments in my head and I was feeling guilty about leaving my mother behind and I was worried that my bosses wouldn't be able to find me for three days. And as soon as I arrived in that place, I realized that none of that mattered and that really, by being here, I would have so much more to offer my mother and my friends and my bosses. And one of the, 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 the last thing I'll say about this is that nowadays, um, when I visit my mother, she lives in the hills of California at exactly the same elevation as the monastery. Mm. 1,200 feet and she enjoys a beautiful view over the Pacific Ocean. And to anybody looking at her house, they would say it's the last word in tranquility and seclusion. But of course, when I'm at home, if ever I'm tempted to read a book, a part of me is braced for the phone to ring or the mm. chime of you've got mail in the next room. So I <laughs> interrupt myself, even if it doesn't interrupt me. And if ever I'm tempted to look at the stars, I think, oh, no, there are a thousand things I have to do around the house or around the town. Or if I'm involved in a deep conversation, I suddenly think, oh, the Lakers game is on TV. I should do that. And so one way or another, I always cut into my own clarity and concentration when I'm at home. And it reminded me why sometimes people people like me have to take conscious measures to step into the stillness and right. silence and be reminded of how it washes us clean, really. Was that the same Benedictine uh, hermitage that you go to now, that you spend a few, that you spend time at every year? Absolutely. So I've been okay. going now for 24 years. I've stayed there more than 70 times. And I really think that's my secret home. And in a world of, of change and sometimes impermanence, that, along with my wife and my mother, are really the still point of my world. And wherever I'm traveling in the world, I have the image of um, hmm. that little room with the Pacific below it in my head and the chapel there, too. And I feel that really steadies and grounds me in the way I need in a, in a world of tumult. But I, and I think that's such an important point because as you pursued that place of stillness that you found, both physically and inside yourself, you know, where you, you've always, it seems to me, you've, you've held that in a creative tension with moving back out into the world. And, 
and and with with movement. Right? I mean, there, here's something beautiful you wrote that the point of gathering stillness is not to enrich the sanctuary or the mountaintop, but to bring that calm into the motion, the commotion of the world. I mean, you even talk about how you are different on airplanes, <laughs> which is, this is very <laughs> admirable to me. <laughs> right? But, but, I mean, you really work with this idea also in, in places where it's not just that it seems hardest, it almost seems absurd or unthinkable. The, the, the busiest, craziest places of our culture, shopping yes. malls and airplanes. <laughs> Wonderfully said. No, exactly right. Um, partly because I'm not a monk. I haven't earned the right to be a monk. And I am a functioning journalist. Uh, and of course, what I learned from my monk friends is that they're not stepping away from the world. They're actually, by being in a cloister, stepping deeper into it and learning how to give more to the world and learning how to love the world more. And watching the Dalai Lama move through the world for 40 years now and seeing how he wakes up every morning at 3.30, he meditates for four hours before yeah. he enters the world and then he is able to give himself with such energy and focus and attention for eight hours without stopping for even five seconds is a reminder to me that part of why we respond to people like that or Pope Francis or Leonard Cohen, that sometime monk, is that they are bringing the fruits of their clarity and their stillness and their attention into the heart of Times Square and the White House and the places where it is needed most. Uh, and it took me a while to realize that, uh, that a monk um, is not turning away from the heart or the senses, but it actually is enriching them so that uh, he or she has more to share. Hmm. Um, we haven't used the word spirituality yet. Which I <laughs> <laughs> maybe conscious on maybe my part. conscious no and I no and it's good and I I I think you share my um, I mean that is what we're talking about but the word itself um, is inadequate and 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 overused and and can be squishy. Um, I, 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 you make the same connection when you write explicitly about spirituality. I mean, you know that it arises. Out of the disjunction between us and the transcendent, but, and this is and, the, and this is different though. But that, that it, you know that it, it's still something that happens in interplay um, uh, between us and whatever we're aspiring to. Um, as, as in, that it's not a kind of that. In fact, I mean, spirituality is 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 in is in some kind of tension with stillness, right? That that, that in fact, this is the place where we where we meet our demons as well. I feel like that's um, there in your writing. Yes, <clears throat> beautiful. No, I absolutely agree with that. And I, <laughs> I think um, sometimes mystery is a word I use mm. as an equivalent to spirituality. But you're right. I think our relation with the divine is a love affair and it's a passionate love affair. And it's also as tumultuous as any affair that we have in the world with somebody we care about a lot. And so it's not all sweetness and light and probably shouldn't be because um, the sufferings and the demons are often what instructs us much more than the calm, radiant moments. Uh, and so I love people like Thomas Merton because half the time he's in his hermitage, he's chafing against it. He's knocking against the walls. Yeah. He's longing to be out in the world. And he's honest enough to say that, uh, that as you said, the, um, the electricity comes in the tension and that there's, there's no sense of light without a darkness and without a dark night of the soul. I once um, spent some time in Iceland in the middle of the summer when the sun doesn't set for 90 days and nights. So it's 
it's always light out. And it was very disorienting. I, I lost all sense of mm. when to eat, when to sleep, when to dream. And it was a tiny physical reminder that we need that cycle of light and dark. And indeed, as, as you say, uh, I, I keep on going back to my same hermitage and it feels like my sanctuary and my replenishment and my source, my real life. But when I'm there, sometimes I'll go and the rain will be thundering down on the walls and there's a fog so thick that I can't see anything around me. And there I am in a trailer, alone on a hill, without a single sign of human habitation. And it feels like 40 days in the wilderness and mm -hmm. I feel scared and uncomfortable. And I think all of that is a good thing. And of course, insofar as we all have shadows and demons, I'm much happier to investigate them in the safety of a place like a monastery than in the middle of walking down the street on Sunset Boulevard or in the middle of a life <laughs> where there's so much coming in on me. And insofar as probably all of us feel that one of our duties in life is to look at the places we'd rather not look at, um, it's, it's wonderful that there are safe places, as it were, where we can go. And uh, even in the midst of, of discomfort and challenge, almost feel grateful that we're encountering them rather than um, there, rather than elsewhere. Mm. And, and you know, that, that so nuances um, this kind of simplifi simplified characterizations that we sometimes have about religion. I mean, I agree with you that theology and spiritual practice and religious traditions, um, you know, are all about the complexity of the human condition. But, but that doesn't get, this doesn't find expression so much in in popular culture. You know, I, a couple of years ago, after you uh, published your book about Graham Greene, I went to a conversation you had with Paul Holden Graber at the New York Public Library. Do you remember that? I do. I yeah. wish I'd known you with that, I but know. yes, well, I remember it well. <laughs> I was there. I was there. And because um, I'd started reading you, and um, and you said something that night that I have just been looking, all these years, been looking forward to the day when I would be able to discuss it with you. <laughs> Um, Wonderful. I think Paul may have asked you the question that, it, you know, is always out there. What is the difference between spirituality and religion? And you said, um, I believe you said this, that spirituality is water and religion is the tea. And and what came to my mind, I just, I wondered if, it, what if, what if spirituality is water and religion is the cup? Um you know, which which carries it forward, although it may be flawed and we may drop it and break it. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? No, I love I love that notion of the cup. And if if you had just asked me that question now, <clears throat> I would say that spirituality is, as we were just saying, the story of our passionate affair with what is mm. deepest inside us and with the candle that's always flickering inside us and sometimes almost seems to go out and sometimes blazes. And religion is the community, the framework, the tradition, all the other people into which we bring what we find in solitude. So in some ways I would say very much exactly the thing that you just said. And I should also say, when if I talked about water and tea, I was probably stealing from the Dalai Lama, because <laughs> what he often says wonderfully, because as you know, it, it, he's an interesting religious figure who tells people that there are things more important than religion. Yes. And he says that religion is a luxury. So he will often say that the most important thing without which 
which we can't live, is kindness. We need that to survive. And he says, kindness is water. Religion is like tea. It's a great luxury. Oh, it it okay. increases the savor of life. Um, it's wonderful if you have it. But you can survive without tea. You can't survive without water. And right. so everyday kindness and responsibility is the starting block for every life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I might have been uh, alluding to him there, but um, it's a nice reminder to ground ourselves in the people around us before we start thinking about our texts and our notions of the absolute. Yes, yes. And, but then there is this paradox. You're right. I mean, he's as eloquent as any, as any living being about the limits of religion. But um, he himself... You know, if you think about this tea and this cup analogy, I mean, he himself is such a product of this ancient tr- religious tradition. Um, yes. Right? And, the, and these yes. monks. I mean, you know, it's so interesting to me thinking about you going and being with those Benedictines year after year and how, in fact, that's an experience so many people are having now um, in the 21st century. And I remember... I mean, I grew up Protestant, and uh, I think monastics were... I, it's not something I knew about, and when I learned about it as a girl, it, was, it baffled me. And I remember somebody explaining to me that the people who gave themselves over to monastic existence, you know, were devoting themselves to prayer and contemplation kind of on behalf of all of us. And I thought that was a beautiful idea, and I, I mean, I held that, and I honored that for many years. But it, it's, it's interesting that now... You know, as so many 21st century people are finding refuge and also a kind of grounding in these monasteries, um, they're, they're rea- you know, there's a, there's a depth of reality to that idea that they are praying and being contemplative on behalf of all of us, like keeping the doors open to these places where that can happen. Auto mechanics of the soul in some ways. Uh, And I'm as fascinated by them as I am by the men who can take my car when it stops moving and magically put it together again. But of course, when when we think of monasteries, uh, it gets back to what you and I were just discussing, which is, as you say, more and more people are doing what I do, which is going on retreat and wanting to recollect themselves and replenish themselves and to draw from the energy and uh, inspiration of the monks. But fewer and fewer are ready to make the long-term commitment. And I think that's a sad challenge of the age, that we're, 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 we're getting what we can from it, but we're not really um, surrendering to it absolutely in the way that would really be the most meaningful and fruitful for us. And I wonder, are you having conversations with monastics about that? Because I find them being very reflective about that and, you know, in a wonderful way, also kind of just imagining that their call is transforming and um, yes, and I love nearly all the monastics I say who are really among the wisest people I know mm-hmm. will always say we can't go and actively solicit fresh blood or try and bring people in there and if they did do that they would bring the wrong people or the people with the wrong motivations yeah. so I think they often say all we can do is make sure our practice is as pure as possible and if it is it will naturally magnetically draw people right. but the, the one part of life that we can control is our devotion our prayer and our commitment to something larger than ourselves and I think that's what we are implicitly responding to when we when we meet a monk and we feel something um, very special and for me going on retreat 
I very early heard that um, the monk's commitment was to poverty, chastity, and obedience. And I thought, well, it's wonderful because actually for those of us spending a little time there, it's the opposite of poverty. It's the richest experience I know. It's the opposite of chastity because it's very essential. It wakes up your senses and you're living and attending to the world. And unfortunately for people like me, it's the opposite of obedient because... I'm sort of indulging myself by going mm-hmm. there and it's a great luxury. But I'm very moved by the obedience that sits at the core of every monastic I know. And that's something I think many of us, starting with me, could profitably learn from. Hmm. So I'd also, also like to talk about your sense of the global soul. And I, I wonder how you would just start to talk about what you mean when you use that phrase. Maybe two things. One is what we've already been discussing, which is that person who grows up with many different cultures inside herself and for whom home is a work in progress. It's a moving target in in a way. Home may have less to do with where she comes from than where she's going. And it's something that she's amending every week. And as a little boy with Indian blood and an English accent and an American residence, I thought I was quite unusual and I was sitting in a position of privilege. And I never guessed that within one generation in the major cities of the world now, and especially in our classrooms, most of the kids I meet are much more international than I am and have a much wider global sense of uh, connection, which is wonderful. And and that right here, I'm I'm talking to you from Los Angeles. I was in a classroom yesterday with some high school students and a typical student there might be Mexican-American with a Vietnamese boyfriend and on her (laughs) way to to Prague tomorrow. And again, it's something our grandparents could never have imagined and it brings challenges. But I think it's wonderful that um, our sense of home has expanded in that way. And We only have to look at the White House to see that a member of that group is ostensibly one of the most powerful people on the planet. But the other part that I uh, meant by the global soul goes back to what you were saying really about the inner life. And I felt at the turn of the century when I published that book, everyone was talking about globalization, but nearly always in terms of politics and economics. And I felt that if if that the global had any meaning for most of us, it would be in a much more invisible, mysterious place, changing the way we live and the way we love and the way we dream and the way we write. And it was really the invisible forms of globalization as it takes place inside us that I wanted to attend to and that sometimes get neglected when you see the big overviews in our newspapers, for example. Right. I mean, and you, you know, you, you've described your own life as, I mean, you've kind of, you're kind of born with, um, I don't know, immovable sensibilities as a phrase you've used. You know, you, you always lived mm. between cracks in culture just by virtue of who you were and this complexity of your background. Um, I I think you're in, you know, the, the language of kind of insider and outsider. I mean, obviously, there are different contexts for that. But um, I feel like that's something you really grapple with very openly because, you. I mean, you You've lived in enough places that um, that that language just doesn't even work anymore. It's not complex enough. 
No, that's right. Uh, and at the same time, again, I don't want to presume. So, for example, I've lived in Japan for 27 and a half years now, and I'm still there on a tourist visa, although I mm. could get a more formal kind of visa because I, my wife is Japanese. Right. But to me, I feel, well, I am a tourist, and I don't want to forget I'm a complete outsider in this culture. So the tourist visa reminds me of that. But you're right. In other places uh, where I'm sitting today in California, I couldn't begin to tell you how much I'm inside or how much I'm outside. And that really is, is the condition. The typical person on the streets of Toronto today was born in another country. So would mm. she say she's a Torontonian or not? Probably both and many inflections uh, beyond that. And the, the relation of the center and the margin, all these things are really upended or, as you say, they're dissolved uh, these days in our age of movement. And, of course, I'm very lucky because I've been able to travel in quite a privileged way. And I always remember that 50 million people in the world are... Uh, Exiles and refugees and are right, traveling in a right. much more undefended way. And, and that is the, the, that's the dark side of all of this. It's the, yes. Mm -hmm. They never wanted to leave their home mm -hmm. and they never wanted to have to think about home in new terms, but poverty or warfare or circumstances have forced them to do so. And so I, I don't think I should spend much time thinking about my situation because I'm very fortunate. But those situations are one of the dawning problems of our age. There are many more refugees now than after World War II and that they're all around us. And I often tell my friends that even if you never move, even if you uh, are living in your grandmother's house in Minneapolis or New York or Los Angeles or Toronto or Sydney, you have to think a lot about um, the rest of the world because you are surrounded by people speaking Spanish and the customs of Vietnam and the spices of Somalia. So nobody is exempt from having to expand their consciousness uh, and, and, and think about what the other is because the other is in your hometown and your backyard and often your bedroom. And uh, so, the, again, when you said that there's little distinction between insider and outsider, even the distinction between the self and the other doesn't make much sense these days. Right. And I think a lot about, at the moment, about, um, you know, we speak at the axial age between like the second and eighth centuries BCE, where all at once, uh, I mean, we're, you know, all at once it, in hindsight, um, in the same handful of centuries um, on different continents, you had you had the Buddha, you had Confucius in China, you had the Second Isaiah of the Hebrew Scriptures, and the and the, and we we date kind of the the origin of our spiritual traditions to that to, to that period and and the the great the great insight that emerged with different practices and vocabulary around it, but that the core insight was that one's well-being could be connected, um, could be linked to the well-being of others who are not part of one's tribe and family. And it seems to me like in light of what you just said, you know, so, so that's a beautiful idea, and it brought so much into the world that has shaped all of us ever since. But there's a sense in which now in the 21st century with globalization, I mean, this is the moment that to use the language as you do of global soul is, I mean, you're describing something that we can all point at and see. Um, and, that, you know, it seems to me that we have both a necessity and an opportunity to grow into that, um, you know, the spiritual and moral aspects of this reality that in fact our well-being is existentially linked. 
Um, but it's a huge shift for human beings to make. It is, but exactly. I couldn't agree more with what you you just said. And I think to to talk about a global soul is really to talk about global conscience and global responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that has really moved me in the last few years is, for example, to see somebody like Bill Gates, who used such resourcefulness and ingenuity to make billions of dollars, using that same resourcefulness and ingenuity to give billions of dollars away to the places where it is most needed. Or Bono, who is one of my spiritual heroes, and teachers from mm. U2 always reminding us that we can't ignore the grandmother on the streets of Dakar or the homeless kid uh, on in Addis Ababa or Rangoon because they are our neighbors and what happens to them affects us. We're all poignantly aware now that our globe is so interconnected that whatever happens in one place has reverberations everywhere. So we do have to extend our consciousness, not just to the poor people in our own hometown, but really across the planet. And I think, as you say, it's a difficult thing, but I I do think we have some wonderful guides there. I, I notice, I think when Pope Francis recently went to Jerusalem, he went accompanied by an, a rabbi and an imam, who were two of his mm. old friends. Mm. Um, and um, Archbishop Tutu, I think, bringing his wisdom to every situation and saying things like, God is not a Christian. Extraordinary mm. thing yeah. for such a devout Christian man to say. And the Dalai Lama, too. And he's an interesting example because he often will say that when he was a little boy growing up in Tibet, he really thought that Buddhism was the greatest religion on earth because he'd never seen another religion, really. There were some Muslims in Lhasa, but by and large, he was in an entirely Buddhist country, totally isolated from the rest of the world. And then he met Thomas Merton, and then he came out into the larger world, and he saw that every religion has its value and its truth, and he always likens them, as you know, to medical systems. And it's good to have these different forms of medicine because different bodies respond uh, to, mm-hmm. to you yeah. know, acupuncture or Western medicine or Chinese medicine or whatever it would be. Uh, and you can see that he often says, well, he's lost his home in Tibet and in the process he's gained a home across the world. And when mm-hmm. somebody, it's not just a nice sentence when it comes from him because we can see visibly he is so at home when he's in Paris or Sydney or, or Los Angeles. And I think he brings us back to that wonderful truth, which is also maybe a feature of this age. Age, which is that when a Buddhist and a Christian have a really deep conversation, the Buddhist becomes a better Buddhist and a Christian becomes a better right. Christian. Right. Um, and I think that's what's been happening in the last 25 years that is probably enriching all our traditions. Yeah, and there again is that paradox that, that somehow we've gotten to a point where we can have these um, profound encounters with people of different, not of other, with the other, including the religious other. Um, and it doesn't actually become relativistic. It actually takes us deeper into into identities and traditions, r- more richly into traditions and identities. Yes. I mean, I often tell my friends that for me, really, the beauty, one of the great beauties of travel is better appreciating home. And as soon as I right. leave this country, I see America as it is constructed in the eyes of people around the world, generally very, very admiring. And it wakes me up to some of the beauties of this country that I take for granted or forget when I'm in the midst of it. You also, you are you often, you write about um, the idea of nowhere, nowhere with a capital N. Um, <laughs> <laughs> would you tell me what, the, how, what, where, where is that, that nowhere with a capital N? What does it mean? Well, it's probably the wilderness, and the wilderness is probably the place where one finds illumination. Mm. But 
the reason I, I came up with that funny formulation is that I, I noticed when I began traveling a lot 30 years ago, I would talk about going to Cuba or going to, to Tibet and people's eyes would light up with excitement. And nowadays I notice that people's eyes light up most in excitement when I talk about going nowhere or going offline because mm. nowadays it's not difficult. Anybody listening to this show can go to her bedroom this evening and in on her smartphone access parts of Cuba and Tibet that I could never see in person. In other words, the, the physical external world is available to us as never before. But I think many of us are drowning under the information. And what we're crying out for is freedom from the, the bombardment of images and pieces of data and, and snippets. Mm. Uh, I was just hearing that there's this new field with the wonderful term of interruption science. <laughs> and <laughs> the researchers there have found it takes the average human being 25 minutes to recover concentration after a phone call. But of course, the average human being listening to a show like this gets a phone call every 11 minutes. Mm. So in other words, we're never caught up. And the more we try to keep up with the moment, uh, the further we fall behind. And I think a lot of us have this sense that we're living at the speed of light, uh, at a pace determined by machines, and we've lost the ability to live at the speed of well, life. Right. And, well, and we I are, think that's what... Right. That's good. Well, we are analog creatures. We, you, yes. when, here's a play, way you said it in The Guardian. We have more information and less space to make sense of it. I mean, that's also that, you know, that, that it's not just the, the pace, but, um, but the room uh, to, to make meaning as well as just be processing or getting through our to-do lists. Exactly. And so we were talking earlier about travel, and I think travel, like any uh, kind of encounter, gives me the raw experience, but I can only extract the meaning by sitting still. It's very hard mm. to put things in perspective when you're on the move. Mm. And so travel is almost the appetizer for the main course, which takes place when I'm back at my desk and going through everything that I've experienced in Iran or North Korea, trying to see how it's changed me, what I can bring from that into my life, trying to find what has moved me the most. And I think whoever you are, whether you're a mother raising kids or somebody going to the office, you know that really, as you said, you're extracting the meaning only when you're away from it. And I sometimes think nowadays, <clears throat> you know how when you go into a museum and sometimes you stand very close to a canvas and it's very crowded and it's noisy and sometimes it's moving and you have to step back and then further mm. back mm. and further back. And it's only when you're very far away that suddenly you can see what the canvas is saying and suddenly you can see the larger picture, literally, and it clicks into focus. And I think that canvas is our lives. We're living so close to our lives, we can't make sense of them. And that's why people like me go on retreat or other people meditate or do yoga or other people go for runs. That each person, I think, now has to take a conscien conscious measure to separate herself from experience just to be able to do justice to experience and, and to process, as you said, and understand what is going on in her life and direct herself. The, we, we spoke, we've spoken about your, your notion of stillness, and that's one way you describe your, your practice. And, and, and uh, one way you you talk about that. A Buddhist corollary is this notion of right absorption. Um, and I really like that. And I, I, I think that also applies to what you just described. I mean, um, and also the something, a discipline, uh, and maybe even a necessity for all of us in whatever kind of life we lead. 
Yes, I love that word absorption mm. because I think that's my definition of happiness. And I think all of us know we are happiest when we forget ourselves, when we forget the time, when we, when we lose ourselves in a beautiful piece of music or a movie or deep conversation with a friend or an intimate encounter with someone we love. That's our definition of happiness. And very few people feel happy racing from one text to the next, to the appointment, to the cell phone, to the emails. If people are happy like that, that's great. But I think a lot of us have got caught up in this cycle that we don't know how to stop and isn't sustaining us in the deepest way. And I remember, you know, I used to work in on a 25th floor office in Midtown Manhattan in my 20s, and I found it exhilarating. I really enjoyed it. But at some point, I thought, I'm so caught up in this fast-moving treadmill that I can't even really determine if I'm happy or not. So I have to step aside to see if there may not be a deeper happiness. I think it's, I was thinking recently, it's like if you're eating potato chips and they're tasty and they're filling you up and you're having a great time, but as long as you keep eating them, you can't see that there's a piece of salmon there or a vegetable risotto or a steak that may be even tastier as well as healthier. But if you're focused on the potato chips, by which I mean a kind of superficial gratification, mm. you, you forget about the deeper happinesses that actually are all around you. And so I left my job in, in New York City and moved to a single room on the back streets of Kyoto. And I figured whatever happened out in that experience, at least it would open a door to a different side of life and, and rectify the balance. Because you were speaking a lot earlier about the inner life, and I think we all know our outer lives are only as good as our inner lives. So to neglect our inner lives is really to incapacitate our outer lives. We don't have so much to give to other pers- people or the world or our job or our kids. But don't you think that the 20th century kind of tried to sever that link and pretend like we could... We could we could construct uh, systems uh, based on reason and order and um, and we kind of compartmentalized inner life. Um, I mean, I think that's behind you know you describing the institutions of higher skepticism, right? I mean, we kind of educated ourselves out of talking about connecting inner life and outer life. But of course, you know, and and you're I, I absolutely agree. That's that's what we're describing that modern people and it's that connection that people are rediscovering, not just spirituality, but um but this desire to be whole, really. Yes. And if the twentieth century did that, the twenty first century is doing it even more. Yeah, you know, you we're feel amusing that. ourselves to death. Mm-hmm. And with all the more diversions and the more external seductions we have, mm-hmm. the easier it is to, to relinquish the, uh, the inner life and then wonder why we're feeling so lost. And you know, I think one reason that I felt I needed some stillness in my life and started going on retreat a lot was that uh, at some point in my life a doctor's going to come into my room with a very dark expression on my on his face and at some point I'm going to lose people I love and at some point a car is probably going to crash into mine and in those moments of real life which is suffering uh, what is going to sustain me is it racing around the world and um, polishing my resume and bank account or is it actually you know gathering those inner resources and to some extent I think um, being quiet is a way of preparing not just for death but for real life, which involves mm. suffering and loss. And then sometimes we're very short-sighted and then suddenly we're caught, caught up by life and we're unprepared for it. And we prepare so much for a date or a job interview or a driving test, but we don't prepare for the most important things. And we can at, at any moment, I feel. So you're right. I think if we do marginalize the inner life or sever it or get too caught up in the external, 
um, we and everyone around us pay a big price. I, uh, there are lots of surveys around these days, of course, but one that I read was that uh, they looked at people walking down a street and somebody came up to them with a hand in need. And they found that what determined whether the person responded to that appeal with kindness or not had nothing to do with income and nothing to do with race and nothing to do with background. It was a function of just one thing, whether they had time or not. If the person had time, they would be very kind. And if they were mm-hmm. racing off to an appointment, they didn't. So I think most of us most prize intimacy, happiness and kindness. And if we're racing around, I think we're forfeiting all of those, really. Now... You know, one interesting thing you've said about living in Japan, in fact, is that it, it's made you aware of time in a new way. Now, and, and again, I want to go back, because isn't it true? What, so you, in your 20s, you left your, your very successful, exciting life in New York, and you, I think you left to live for a year in a temple in Kyoto, but you didn't end up staying for a year. Is that right? Exactly right. I stayed for a week, <laughs> by, by which time I found a temple in Kyoto is very different than what I had imagined in, in right. Midtown Manhattan. Yeah, <laughs> but, but I did. Yeah. I, I did move then to a, a single room on the back streets of Kyoto without even a toilet or a telephone. Oh, or a okay. Bed, so, All right, uh, then you're absolved. Um, but but but, <laughs> you, but you have written that. So tell me what you what you learned about time, and perhaps this is still true because you spend most of your life in Japan now. What? I'm so so intrigued because I also think time is uh, time is just such a fascinating concept and it has all this resonance both in science and in mysticism and uh, anyway so yes and I think we all know that sensation we have more and more time saving devices but less and less time yeah. it seems to us and I think when I was a boy the sense of luxury had to do with a lot of space, maybe having a a big house or a huge car. Now I think luxury has to do with having a lot of time. The ultimate luxury now might be just a blank space in in the calendar. And Mm. interestingly enough... So true. That's what we crave, I think, so yeah. many of us. Um, and sociologists recently did a survey of time diaries. They asked various Americans just to record what they did every day. And they found that the average American is working fewer hours on the job and at home than Americans were 50 years ago. But we feel as if we're working more. So something has gone wrong. We're not working enough, but we feel really stressed. So when I moved from New York City to rural Japan, so after my year in Kyoto, uh, I essentially moved to a two-room apartment, which is where I still live with my wife and formerly our two kids. And we don't have a car or a bicycle or a TV, I can understand. It's, it's very simple, but it feels very luxurious. And one reason is that when I wake up, it seems as if the whole day stretch, stretches in front of me like an enormous meadow, which is never a sensation I had when I was in Gogo, uh, New York City. And I can spend five hours uh, at my desk, then I can take a walk, and then I can spend one hour reading a book that where, as I read, I can feel myself getting, I'd say, deeper and more attentive and more nuanced. It's like a, a wonderful conversation. Then I have a chance to take another walk around the neighborhood and take care of my emails and keep my bosses at bay and then go and play ping pong and then spend the evening with my wife. And it seems as if the day has a thousand hours. And that's exactly mm. what I tend not to 
experience or feel when I'm, for example, today in Los Angeles and moving from place to place. And I suppose it's a trade-off. So I gave up financial security and I gave up the excitements of the big city, but I thought it was worth it in order to have two things, freedom and, and time, and um, not to feel. The biggest luxury I enjoy when I'm in Japan is as soon as I arrive there, I take off my watch and I feel I never need to put it on again. And I can soon begin to tell the time by how the light is slanting off our walls uh, at sunrise mm. and, and when the darkness falls. And I suppose back to a more essential human life. And and that's about the life you've crafted rather than something in Japanese culture. I mean, right? You could. It is, but of course, mm-hmm. uh, when I left New York City, I could have gone anywhere. And as mm-hmm. a writer, I'm lucky I could do my job anywhere. But I chose Japan because it has such a rich tradition of contemplation. Mm. Um, in Kyoto alone, as you know, there are 2,000 temples and shrines, and mm. they are the places where Zen monks for 800 years have been working on collecting themselves. And I think one reason I went um, to Japan, it goes back to what you were asking about the Institutes of Higher Skepticism, is that my education had taught me quite well to talk, but I don't think it had taught me to listen. And mm. it, my schools had taught me quite well to sort of push myself forward in the world, but it never taught me to erase myself. And the virtues of when I got to Japan, finding that I was essentially an illiterate. I can't read. I can't To this day, I can't read or write Japanese. Mm. And I'm at the mercy of things around me. I can't have the illusion that I'm on top of things. And, uh, and the other thing that I thought I wanted to learn from Japan, well, two other things. One is the sense of tradition that you and I have been talking about. As somebody who didn't grow up with a single fixed tradition, I felt I could learn from a country that has been really going along its own path for a long, long time. And also the sense of selflessness that I find to be instinctual in Japan and very humbling. And when I meet a Japanese person, her intent usually is not on telling me who she is or expressing her preferences, but finding out who I am and trying to find what my preferences are. As you know, the, the, the whole culture is based around harmony, which means taking care of others before yourself. And again, I thought I hadn't learned so much about that in my institutes of higher skepticism. And Japan was a place that I had a huge amount to learn from, and I'm still learning it. Mm. There's a... You, you've... You've talked about, um, you know, that we are rediscovering, I really love this phrase, the urgency of slowing down. (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. Thank you. Well, I think we, we're all feeling dizzy. We, yeah. we got onto this accelerating roller coaster that we never quite asked to get on, and we don't know how to get off. And I think my keenest sense is that our devices are not going to go away, nor would we want them to. They've made our lives so much brighter and healthier and longer. But it's a safe bet that they're only going to accelerate and proliferate. So if we're feeling dizzy now, we're liable to feel much more dizzy five or ten years from now, and we're really going to have to take emergency measures just to keep ourselves in proportion and in balance. And um, and so I sometimes think that travel is how I get my excitement and stimulation, but stillness is how I keep myself sane. Mm-hmm. And that sanity is something that's ever more imperiled these days amidst the... Um, the status updates and the breaking news and the bombardment that is continuing of uh, 
of news coming at us from every direction, which is really, you know, Pascal wonderfully in the 17th century said, our problem is distraction, but we try to distract ourselves from distraction so we get even worse in this vicious cycle. So the only cure for distraction is attention. And I go to my monastery and I go to Japan because they are cathedrals of attention and um, they are places where people are very attentive and where people like me can try to learn attention. And you mentioned um, your children. Um, do you see them? Are, are they? They're they're Japanese. Is that correct? They they're, are correct. Okay. Yes. And is that? Do you see them? You know, because what you're what I mean the the fact that time is as much a matter of perception and perspective. I mean, it is a matter of perception and perspective rather than something fixed. Um, that is true. Although our senses have trouble perceiving that. Um, but what I think spiritual traditions and disciplines add is this bringing intention into the picture and saying you can transform your experience of time. Um, I wonder if you uh, experience your children to be coming up with, you know, with their own ways to be navigating this world, which is, you know, in which is on which, in which they are less. Uh, Maybe, maybe generationally less less dizzy, dizzied by it than, than perhaps the generation of their parents and grandparents. Exactly. I'm so glad you said that because, of course, I think a lot of people rightly feel concerned about their kids in yeah. this age of um, where one teenager was found to have handled 300,000 texts in a month. That's 10,000 <laughs> a day. But I'm not worried about... Uh, my kids' generation, because as you say, I think they're wise and they've all found their own balance. I think it's more people in my generation yeah. who've suddenly got all these new toys and don't know quite how what to do with them and how to live with them. And I sometimes think when I was growing up, the two exciting things were cars and televisions, and we all wanted to enjoy them as much as possible until we found that the car would take us into a gridlock traffic jam <laughs> and the television was making us numb and passive. So in other words, we were very excited about them initially, and then we worked through that excitement and tried to come to a balance with them. And I think, just as you say, our kids will do exactly the same. And so, um, and I've noticed that when I talk to kids, often they will say things like, "I've at the age of 17, I decided to get off Facebook. I realized yeah, it was I, too I much. Just, I hear that everywhere, too. I mean, you said you were with these high schoolers in Los Angeles the other day. Were you talking about stillness with them? or? Uh, not so much. I was talking okay. about writing, and it was thrilling because they seemed to read a lot of books and be very, very keen about writing. Um, and the sentence, again, that I often hear is, you know, my parents took me on a cruise and we couldn't get um, cell phone or internet reception. And the first day I thought I would die. And after a week, I thought this is the best week I've ever spent. Right. And yeah, I right. felt so, so um, liberated. So um, humans are humans and we adapt to new challenges. And uh, yes, I have m much more faith in, in my kids than I do in me. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and I couldn't help wondering, um, as I'm reading you and reading about the life you've crafted, um, I mean, you really have chosen uh, a simplicity that, that, you know, and I think you even use the word luxurious. And you talk about me being with Leonard Cohen, and he uses the word luxurious. So, um, um, and I, but, you know, and, and in such a contrast to the, to the you at 29, um, living the American dream. But also, I, I couldn't help wondering how much of, you know, 
what you've been able to choose and create also is about the the wisdom that comes just with with growing older with age um you know a, a capacity that that stillness becomes more natural and more enjoyable somehow i think inherently now I, i'm not sure everyone leans into that in fact i know they don't but um is that something you're aware of too? I mean, you've been living this way quite a long time. Do you know what I'm yes. saying? Yes, and and I couldn't agree with you more. Exactly. I can give lots of fancy reasons for why I, I enjoy stillness, but a lot of it has to do with getting older, and a lot of it has to do with being lucky enough to um, have seen a lot of the world and seen most of the places I wanted to see, and to some extent exhausted to come to the end of the line when it comes to traveling across the globe horizontally, mm-hmm. because I've been able to do a lot of it. As you said, I've been doing it for many years. And then stillness becomes the next country to to visit and to explore <laughs> right. in some ways, perhaps, but a, but a much deeper one and the one that makes sense of all the others. And I think it goes back, to, I, I loved what you were saying about time, because I realized that when I first went to that monastery, essentially the beauty of it was I was stepping out of time. And when I went into that little cell, I didn't know what year it was, I didn't know what season sometimes it was, and I certainly didn't need my watch. But I was stepping out of the world of change into something that seemed changeless. And it, I used to say, um, I'm, I'm stepping into eternity when I come here. Yeah. And um, that's what all of us feel at different points in our life. But um, we certainly, I think even when I was young, uh, I... I could feel that this is a different order uh, of fulfillment and happiness from the one that I'm getting in the world. And that's why I gave up some of the world when I was 29 in order to explore more of this. But you're absolutely right. As as the years go on, inertia takes over and suddenly the the great thing seems to be just sitting at my desk writing. That's that's my big adventure now. And I don't even know if it's inertia. I mean, I was reading recently that, um, that there's some new study that has... People so that when we're young, we're kind of hardwired to find um, excitement and to find satisfaction in novelty, and that as we age, we we more naturally find you know excitement. I I mean and and satisfaction in 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 what is ordinary in in patterns and habits and kind of the everyday. Um, you know, contours of our lives. And I mean, I certainly, I'm in my, my mid-50s. I mean, I certainly feel like I'm experiencing that in my 50s. And, um, and it's, you know, it's, it's actually a lovely, it kind of explain, you know, helps me think about why, why wisdom comes with age, you know, that, that why an elder um, becomes an elder because, that, because those, ins, those, what becomes more natural is really getting at like the deepest insights of, of spiritual traditions. Yes, I, I I love that. I mean, I'm still waiting for wisdom to kick in, and I'm beginning to think it'll never kick in. I, I mean, I, I'm, I think I'm, you're doing all right. <laughs> I, I'm startled at how much I say. Actually, I know less than I did when I was in my twenties. But I I so agree with your deeper point. I was just saying to somebody yesterday that at some point, I, I'm only I think a couple of years older than you. I noticed that I was getting so much more satisfaction from. Uh, visiting my old friends and looking around for mm. new friends and mm-hmm. rereading yeah. the books I've always loved which each time were giving me new and new things rather than trying to find the latest good book and, and revisiting the places with which I have a relationship over 30 or 50 years and instantly you don't have to explain yourself and you're doing without the, the, sh- the excitement of novelty but you're 
into a much deeper and more intimate encounter. And you're right that find that soon that becomes much more sustaining than mm-hmm. just getting the new. And of course, the older you get, the harder it is to be confronted with something new, which is why probably time accelerates and it seems like the years are whizzing by, like the calendar pages in one of those old movies. Yeah. And I, th- I think the other thing that I th- that I suppose I learned from Leonard Cohen was when I saw him and he was living as a monk for five years. Uh, when I met him, uh, he was living for a monk for five years in the cold, dark mountains behind Los Angeles. And he said, as you mentioned, that sitting still and looking after other people and scrubbing floors was the great voluptuous excitement of life, yes. even though he'd enjoyed all the pleasures of the world. But the second part of that process, which maybe is even more important, is again, he came back into the world and he's toured the world in his 70s for six years and became one of the most popular musicians on the planet. And I think the reason he became popular was that people could tell he was coming down from the mountain in a way. In other right. words, he was bringing wisdom and depth and selflessness to the concert stage, just where we don't usually see it. And I think even if they couldn't articulate it, people felt that they were getting something of the stillness and pointedness of the monastery from him, not just another kind of agenda or somebody trying to sell something. Yeah, um, you know, we're, we, we're, we're, we're winding down towards the end, but, but I, I do want to ask you about... Um, Mysticism, and I, I want to read something you wrote because this was from Wild River, I believe. Um, hmm. Okay. Or, or maybe you. Anyway, maybe it was an interview. But anyway, and it mentions Leonard Cohen, and and I and I, you know, I think mysticism is, uh, you know, the final frontier of spirituality, right? But you said this, um, and it intrigued me. Mysticism to me is what stands out of time and beyond circumstance. Read a 13th century Zen discourse, pick up St. John of the Cross, and listen to the latest Leonard Cohen album, and you're instantly in the same place. Mysticism is almost the unchanging backbeat and backstage truth that stands behind all the changing surfaces and shifts in the world. Does, My heavens, I actually like that. <laughs> I, still, I still believe it. <laughs> does, and I, yeah, go yes. on. Go on. No, please. Well, I was just, does mysticism um, have a different role or a new role or an expansive role in a globalized world or in the 21st century world? I think in an accelerated world, it does. Mm. Because I think we need more than ever to root ourselves in what is out of time and larger than us and not contained in the latest CNN update. And I think insofar as our lives are more and more determined by our machines and by our sense of needing to keep up with the moment, we need to be grounded in what exists outside all moments. I think the moment exerts a tyranny on us now that it didn't even 20 years ago, and it's probably going to increase. And it's wonderful to know what happened two seconds ago at the Grammys or even more important in Iraq. But can't begin to make sense of it unless we have a larger, more spacious canvas on which to put it. And I think in that sense, it's funny when you just read that description of mysticism, it sounds exactly like my description of my hermitage. And I think I was probably using those as almost interchangeable terms there. But just to um, be able to put things in context and, and meaning is what sustains us in our life, not just experience. And as you said earlier, the meaning is you can only get by stepping away and stepping apart from the world, from the moment, and from yourself. And if mysticism is a word for 
that place where we are deeper and wiser than ourselves, or at least can listen to something inside ourselves that seems much larger than we are, we certainly need that um, more than ever. Because I would imagine in the 19th century, say, when there were far fewer obvious diversions, uh, maybe it's a romantic notion, but I imagine people being able to hear the better part of themselves a little more often. It's it's mm. it's hard mm. to hear in the clamor mm. of, of the, the contemporary. And I notice people more and more talk about cutting through the noise, and that's what we really need to do. And I suppose mysticism is a way of cutting through the cacophony of the moment and reminding us of what is real, and then reminding us of how to respond to the real and, and to do justice to it. And it's funny that I listed all those people, um, yeah. the great mystics, in that sentence, because I remember now, as we're talking, when I went to see Leonard Cohen in the monastery then, and he was talking about his then 88-year-old Japanese Zen teacher, and he said, this teacher, Rumi, John of the Cross, Meister Eckhart, they're all the same person. And I think mm. that's uh, maybe that speaks to the other part of your question, which is the beauty of mysticism is it's the place where um, distinctions dissolve and where there's no you and me, there's no East and West, there's no old and new. We are in the place beyond uh, dualisms and beyond, beyond the tricks of the mind, really, to go back to your uh, point about being an intellectual. We are in, in that space um, where we're not outside the world making judgments and distinctions. We are in some truth which we don't even have to name, but it's the place where all those great con traditions converge. Uh, and it, it's the truth that lies beyond the name of those traditions and beyond mm. talking about Islam or Buddhism or Christianity. And I guess it's in that sense the common ground that all those people share. So if Rumi and John of the Cross and Meister Eckhart uh, and uh, Dogen, the great Zen teacher, were to talk together, each might talk in the language and in the framework of his particular tradition, but what they'd be talking about is something each of them would recognize as his most intimate reality. And none of their words would reach quite far enough. Right, they no, have, exactly, yeah. exactly. Mysticism is the place where all <laughs> words, explanations run out. Yeah, but but the but the uh, the calling to try to put words around that is still is 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 essential. Um, yes, yeah. uh, yes. That we point towards the moon, as they yeah. say in Japan. <laughs> um, I I I don't ever. I rarely see you speaking of God, and I really feel like what you just said is so eloquent. And um, and certainly, God is one of those uh, realities we can only point at with words. I, I, I don't know. Do you do you have a sense of God, or is 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 that language you avoid, or is it just that I haven't seen it? No, you're right. It is language I avoid. And I, I remember as a little boy, whenever I saw something in capital letters, something in me would recoil. <laughs> right. But uh, oddly enough, somebody two weeks ago, suddenly out of nowhere, asked me, what is God? And I said, reality. And later I thought, well, actually, I probably do believe that. And I think that it has many ramifications. But usually what I would say is... I would certainly use the word the divine, as you and I have used earlier in this discussion. And you know, I think we all have something changeless and vast and completely unfathomable inside us. And I'm very happy if a Christian calls that God and if a Muslim calls that Allah and if a Buddhist calls that reality or something else. Um, again, I don't think the, the, the names matter so much, but the truth is very, very important. And I think that's the fundamental truth that we can't afford 
to lose sight of. And I think when you talked earlier on about my seeking out spiritual places and people, I suppose it's because at a very early age, I noticed that I didn't have one fixed religion myself, that people who did have a religious commitment seemed to be acting with such kindness and such selflessness and such clarity that I thought, these are people I want to learn from. And Mm. I think what I was learning from them was that they were listening to God and even more importantly, sometimes obeying God and obeying God when God is asking them impossible things, but still they knew that that was where their commitment lay. And so... Um, I can't begin to say how much appreciation and admiration I have for those who have made uh, God the center of their lives, or in the case of the Dalai Lama, he might say reality is the center of his life, but yeah. it's a variation on the same thing. So you do lead this very simple life, but but you write books that people read, and you've given a TED Talk, which has been viewed by a few million people. And, um, you know, you've written... Um, you're in this new book on stillness, your, your book on stillness, but also uh, a couple of times in recent years, uh, you know, you've, you've had pieces on the, um, in the New York Times, like in the Week in Review, or they're kind of the, um, those pages, and uh, mm. they're, they're different. There's a, well, I would almost say there's a quietness and a, um, you know, there's something soft and um, and spiritual, but in a, in a very kind of reality-based way. Um, so they work on the pages of the New York Times, but I think they also uh, distinguish themselves. There's one you wrote um, a couple of years ago, maybe while you were writing your book on stillness. Was it called, was it called The Joy of Quiet? Is that right? Yes. The Joy of yes. Quiet? And I just want to, you ended with, um, you were at your monastery, the monastery where you, your secret home, as you say, in California, I believe, and you talked about, you know, on the, out walking, speaking to a, someone who works at MTV, brings his young children there, so he's introducing them to the joy of quiet, and you, you had this just line that just stayed with me um, at the end, you know, the child of tomorrow, you wrote, the child of tomorrow, I realized, may actually be ahead of us in terms of sensing not what's new, but what's essential. I just want to read that back to you. It's very beautiful. Thank you. Well, thank you for, uh, for such a high compliment. And the reason I ended that piece with that sentence was, uh, of course, I'd begun the piece by describing how I, I was going to a conference in Singapore with the title Marketing to the Child of Tomorrow. Yes, so yes. that piece was really moving from the profane to the sacred or moving from the heart of the world where the child of tomorrow is seen in the same sentence as marketing to what is really going to support the child of tomorrow, which is far from the marketplace and is something more akin to stillness. And um, In fact, I, I wonderfully had an editor at the New York Times who would throw these things at me and who also commissioned the TED book a couple of years ago. So oh, right. out of the blue, though we had never met, she said, why don't you write a piece on, on silence? And then she said, why don't you write a piece on anxiety? And why don't you write a piece on suffering? And I was so glad to have the chance to talk about those things. And as you said, I was pleasantly surprised that the New York Times would want to feature those prominently yes. in the newspaper as the corrective to the moment. And thank you for the nice words you said. If insofar as my kind of piece was 
different from some of the other ones in those pages. It might be because I am this curious anomaly, which is I'm a journalist who's never used a cell phone, who's never been on Facebook, who lives in a two-room apartment in rural <laughs> Japan without a TV recently with until recently without high speed internet and without no without any media and as a journalist who still is, whose job is to write about the world and what's going on i took myself to that place because i felt we've got plenty of the perspective from Times Square. And there's no shortage of people right in the thick of things telling us what to make of the latest bomb in Mosul yeah. or whatever. But by taking myself very, very far away and and really by living in my little house with Ralph Waldo Emerson and Shakespeare and Emily Dickinson and Proust and they're my neighbors there, maybe I could see the day's news through a different perspective and a slightly wider perspective. And to a small degree, I I've been in the mass media for 32 years now, writing for Time magazine and the New York mm. Times and many others, and they serve a function. But I feel that if we're trying to make sense of the world, it makes sense to go to those elders that you mentioned and to the wise spirits who are still with us because their wisdom never gets old. And whether it's uh, the Stoics who are telling us that it's not experience that forms us, but our response to experience, or Emerson and Thoreau or so many others, I feel, well, they might be better guides to what's happening right now than, mm. um, than just CNN or Fox News. And so that was part of what was involved in my making this maybe counterintuitive decision to place myself in the middle of nowhere, nowhere with a big N. And I thought it would give me a different perspective on the news and I'm glad that when you were reading those pieces you felt well they're coming from a slightly different place from yeah. where many of the op-ed pieces might be. So that that might be your last word but I, I do want to ask you this large question you know as you have lived this life you've lived you know how has your sense evolved of of this great animating question um, behind our spiritual traditions but but also this universal human question you know what what does it mean to be human? I think to be human really means to be connected. And I've, I'm a rather solitary soul, and I've talked a lot about stillness and silence, but I think that they are just way stations. They are refueling places. Uh, it's funny, when we go to an airport nowadays, there's so many recharging stations for our devices, and very <laughs> few for our soul. All of a sudden, there are all these all recharging of a stations. Yes. And we quickly realize it's actually, that it's only when we recharge our soul we can make better use of our devices. Mm. So anyway, so I've been talking about the various ways in which I recharge myself, but that's only with a view, as you said earlier, to coming back into the world and feeling that I have more to share if I've collected myself, whether it's more to share just being with my family or whether uh, it comes out in the writing and uh, maybe by being in a place of stillness I can access a different perspective than if I was racing around um, checking my texts um, but I think you know nowadays we have so many more and more plane connections more and more phone connections but sometimes it can seem fewer and fewer human connections and part of my concern about the digital age is that the beauty of it is we can make contact with right. people on the far corners of the earth that the challenge is we sometimes lose contact with ourselves, especially our deeper selves. And then we're tempted more to define ourselves in terms of what doesn't matter and what is not going to last very long, whether it's mm. uh, you know, our looks, our finances, or our resume. Um, and I don't think anyone gets the richer if he or she defines herself in those terms. So I think to be human is, try, is to try to find the 
best part of yourself that is in fact beyond yourself and much wiser than you are and have that to share with uh, everyone you care for. Mm. Well, thank you so much. This has just been beautiful and uh, well worth waiting for. Gosh, well, this has been the richest, deepest, actually most intimate conversation I've had in a long time. And <laughs> even though I've listened to you so often, um, I, I really feel lucky to be on the, the beneficiary of your questions. Thank you for, I mean, doing so much at research and drawing from all these other places and coming to that event with Paul Holdengrave. Oh, well, I'm really, and I hope, really and I'll, I hope maybe I'll, I'll somehow I'll meet you someday. I'll come to another event and I promise to introduce myself. I hope so. I mean, we yeah. have a lot of uh, friends in common. And funnily enough, just a, a couple of months from now, I'm going to give the baccalaureate address at the USC and they they tempted me to say yes by saying that you had given oh, that address two years ago. So <laughs> yeah. I often feel as if oh. I'm following in your footsteps oh. or walking side by side with you. So well. thank you for everything you do and, 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 and thank you for including me in your conversation. Well, thank you. And we will uh, we'll let you know what's happening with this. I'm not quite sure when we're going to produce it. It will be sometime in the next couple of months, and but you'll know. You'll have got lots of advance notice even though you're not on any technology. <laughs> and we'll find a way to reach you. Um, so thank you so much, and I, I do hope we'll cross paths in, in, in the flesh one day. Thank you again, all, right. and all good luck to yeah. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.